The reading this morning is from uh, the second chapter of Genesis. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It deserves, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what you have done, listen, your, blood's, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Last week's message was Paradise Lost after the John Milton poem. And this week we've got East of Eden after the Steinbeck novel. And I want to point out before we start that I'm not just choosing these titles to sound literary and smart. Of course, that's part of it. But there's a secondary reason, which is to reinforce the big theme of this this series we're in, which is that the Bible is a story. The Bible is this one big story and narrative. It's literature. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. Certainly not less than that. It's, It's great literature, and every great piece of literature that's followed after it has drawn on it in some way, a lot of them really explicitly. So Milton's poem is just Genesis 3, reimagined poetically. Steinbeck's novel is a retelling of the Cain and Abel story. I actually haven't read it. Um, I saw the the James Dean movie, which Brittany says is nothing like the original, but you have to watch it anyway because James Dean only made three movies. Anyway, um, this morning we're f- we're wrapping up this this first segment of the series. Twenty one weeks as a whole, split it up into three seven week segments. The first seven weeks, we're talking about creation and fall, God making the world and what went wrong with it. We spent the first few weeks talking about God making the world, and then we took a turn and spent the last few weeks talking about what went wrong with the human race. And the facts have changed a little bit each week. We've, we've understood kind of the narrative a little bit more, 
But the theme has stayed the same over these last few weeks. The theme has been consistent. It's sin. The theme has been sin. And we mentioned last week that this idea of sin, this idea of uh, an evil power that inhabits us, that influences us, that's the source of everything that's wrong in the world, it really grates on modern ears. It really grates on modern ears as overly simplistic, something borrowed from the realm of fantasy. It's, it's like, well, you know, maybe earlier generations could believe that that was kind of the explanation for what was wrong with the world. But we are smarter now. We are more sophisticated now. We know the world is more complex than that. It can't be that easy. And that's fine. I mean, you see, you'll see like an article every once in a while that'll say something like, we just need to get rid of this word sin. It's just too simplistic. It's, it's obsolete. It's outmoded. Or this word evil. We just need to get rid of it. You can do that. But then the question is, what are you going to put in its place? What vocabulary are you going to use instead? When there are these war atrocities or massive corruption in government and business or genocide, what are you going to call it? What do you say? Or closer to home you know, or just on a smaller scale, when a, a parent hits their child, what do you call that? When a husband hits his wife or the example we have today, a, a brother striking down his brother, what are you going to call that? What language are you going to use? What vocabulary? You can use the language of psychology, sociology, call it maladaptive behavior, dysfunction, antisocial. It's not profound enough. None of those other disciplines have a profound enough language to talk about what's really going on here. And only the Bible gets at the heart of it. Only the Bible calls it what it really is. So we're talking about sin again this morning, looking at it through the lens of the story of Cain and Abel. And the story teaches us three things about sin First, it shows us what sin does to us, its method. Then it shows us what sin does in us, the substance of sin. And finally, it shows us what sin does to God. What sin does to us, what sin does in us, and what sin does to God. First, what sin does to us? What's its method? How does it operate? Take a look on the back of your program. Look down to the third paragraph that starts with, Then the Lord said to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This is a remarkable image, and it reinforces something we've been saying the whole way along, which is that sin is not just a series of choices that we make, but it's a force, it's a power that has a deadly life of its own. The image here is, is of this, this animal, this deadly animal, a tiger or a leopard crouching, coiled, ready to kill. And if that's true, if it's true that sin is actually this thing that has a life of its own, crouching, ready to kill, then the entire way we approach sin has to change radically. It can't be this thing, getting rid of sin is not this like, personal improvement project you know well my new year's resolution for 2011 is to sin less you know i'd like to have less sin in my life it can't be like that it's not about being good it's not about virtue it's not about self-improvement it's a matter of life and death it's a fight for your life it's very literally a fight for your life and you have to avoid it like the plague because it is a plague it's it's a rapidly advancing disease it's a cancer nobody says my New Year's resolution for 2011 is to get rid of this tumor. It, because if it's killing you, it's, it's urgent. 
And what the Bible says, what God says is sin is like that. It's this alien presence that wants to have you, that wants to take you out. See, is it really that dramatic, that wants to take you out? That sounds pretty intense. Is it really like that? And it is, and you see it all the time. The most obvious example is like a um, politician or religious leader or a, even an athlete, you know, business leader, whatever, who falls into some scandal, um, sexual or, or financial corruption, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. The, the point is, one day they have a life, the next day they don't. They have nothing overnight. They're taken out. They're completely finished overnight by falling into whatever it is. And people look at that, I think, and, and they say, man, I mean, didn't they know that was going to happen? How could anybody be that dumb? They're not that dumb. Nobody's that dumb. It has nothing to do with being smart or dumb. It has everything to do with not realizing what you're up against, not realizing that you're in the crosshairs and that something is trying to take you out, not having any appreciation for the severity of the situation and of the potency of the opponent. That's what the issue is in those circumstances. You say, well, okay, I guess I see then with like a celebrity, you know, how sin could take them out. You're famous and the newspapers write about it and you lose your reputation. Good news is I'm not famous. So how's sin going to take me out? How's it going to take me out? If it, I mean, I'm not going to lose my reputation. Nobody even knows about it most of the time. On that, I want to read you something from C.S. Lewis. This is a mere Christianity. He talks about sin related to this specific point. He says, one man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands. And another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only get laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself, which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage the next time he is tempted, and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not what really matters. Lewis says each has done something to himself. It's not usually how we think of sin. He's just done th- something to himself. He talks about a little mark on the soul or a little twist in the central man. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin's core methodology, which is when you're doing it, it's doing something to you at the same time. And then when you're done with it, you find out that it's not done with you. It goes on longer than you intended to. Because when you give in, when you engage, when you say, okay, sin uses that as an opportunity to come in and to change you, to put a mark on your soul, to actually change your heart, to make you into a different person, to make you receptive to things you wouldn't have been receptive to, to slowly move you closer to the edge. And you see this change in heart that comes from sin in this story that we've been looking at, first with Adam last week, now here with Cain. Adam, when God comes to him after he sins, and God says, you know, what happened? Adam comes, snaps back with, well, the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. This incredibly sullen response. Adam would have never talked to God like that before. What happened? There's a mark on the soul. Or Cain here, when God comes to him and says, what have you done? Where's your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? You think I'm his babysitter? Get out of my face. He would never talk like that to God before. But sin has left a mark on the soul. And it's changing him from the inside out. It's making him into a different person. You say, I, I don't know. I still don't see it. I'm, I, I mean, maybe, maybe that happens in some people's lives, but I can't see any evidence of that in my life. And, of course, that's the whole point. The whole point is that you can't see it. The image is not just this, this crouching tiger 
this hidden dragon um, that's at the door, but it's it's hiding. You know, it's not just that it's crouching. It's not just that it's coiled. It's that it's hiding. It's that it's trying to stay out of sight. And Sin's method is to hide and to attack by surprise, to ambush, to, you know, like I said, push you close to the edge until you're vulnerable. By definition, by definition, the sins that you're least aware of or the sins that you're most apt to deny, those are the areas where you're most vulnerable and you're most in danger. I put down a little list here. As long as you see your grudge as moral outrage, as long as you see your arrogance as healthy self-assertion, as long as you see your workaholism as conscientiousness, as long as you see your materialism as ambition, as long as you see your obsession with good looks as good grooming, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. Sin's trying to take you out. And it's these areas where we deny it. You know, you, you may kind of have a vague notion of it, but somebody brings it up and, well, no, no, that example, no, that wasn't really it. Well, no, here, no, see, what was going on there is this. And those are the areas where you're most vulnerable, where sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you. And if you don't have a short list of these besetting sins, then the chances are sin's mastered you already. So that's the first thing. It sin's method. What it does to us is it attacks. It's a force. It's a power. It wants to have us. It attacks. It hides. It crouches. And it goes after us. And it changes us from the inside out. It leaves a mark on the soul. Second thing, not only what it does to us, but what does it do in us? So first, it's method, but now it's substance. If it leaves a mark on the soul, what does that mark stand for? Can we say anything more about it? You know, another way of putting this is, what are sin's principles? What's its, what are, what's its like core ethos? We see this from the narrative as well, from the different offerings that Cain and Abel bring. But before we look at it directly, I want to read you a verse from Hebrews chapter 11. I didn't have room for this on your program, so I'll just read it to you. This is a later biblical author looking back at the Cain and Abel episode, and he says this. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. And this verse gets to the heart of most people's main confusion about the passage, which is, what's the difference? What's the difference between the two offerings? They, they both bring an offering, and God's pleased with one and not with the other. Cain's a farmer. He brings produce. Abel's a rancher. He brings an animal. They both fulfill their obligation, and yet God treats them differently. What's that about? And it's subtle. The difference is very subtle, and it's supposed to be because it's like everything in the Bible, it's, it's supposed to be a matter of the heart. There's somewhat of a hint here in the text. If you look on the back of your program, the second paragraph right at the top, it says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils, an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils, an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So if you're a farmer or if you're a rancher, your income, your yearly income is not a set amount. It varies year by year, depending on how, how much, you know, how big your crop is. You can tell I'm not a farmer. Um, or how many, you know, how many animals you have. You know, your, your income varies. You never know until the year is over. If you want to be really cagey about your offering, you wait and see how much you get. And then, you know, let's, so let's say you're a rancher, you get 12 lambs that year or whatever. Well, you can give God one or two and, you know, a tithe and it's great. 
But what if you give God the first one and you only have three that year? What if you accidentally give God a third? That'd be pretty exorbitant, don't you think? That'd be pretty outrageous. And yet the Bible says that Abel gives God fat portions from the first of his flock. Abel gives abundantly. He gives freely. He gives in faith. And Cain, it seems, holds back a little bit. And once the crop is pretty good, gives God what he's got off the top. And it's great, you know. You've got enough for me, and I can fulfill my religious obligation, feel good about myself in that realm too. Perfect. What the author of Hebrews goes on to say in this same passage where he's talking about Cain and Abel is that without faith, it's impossible to please God. He compares Cain and Abel, he compares lots of people. He says Abel has faith, Cain doesn't. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We've got to figure out what faith is then, if it's that important. And this episode makes it as clear as any episode in the entire Bible. What is faith? What is faith? It's trusting God. Abel trusts God. He trusts God. He gives in advance. He trusts God to take care of him. It's trusting God. It is not believing in God. It's not, faith is not believing in God. You hear people say, well, yeah, I've, I have faith. I, I believe in God. No. If, if I could wipe out one misnomer from the face of the earth, this would probably be it, equating faith in God with belief. They have nothing to do with each other. Faith has nothing to do with belief in God. You say, how are you so sure? Well, look at the story. Abel has faith. Cain doesn't. Does Cain believe in God? Yeah, he's talking to him. Cain obviously believes in God. The issue isn't believing in him. It's putting your life in his hands. It's trusting him. It's these moments where, well, God, you told me to do this. doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but I'm going to do it anyway. God, I feel like I'm supposed to give this. I feel like I, sh- I need that. You know, It doesn't really seem like that's going to work out very well for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's faith. Trust, not belief. And in that, God is pleased. In fact, the Bible says it's the only thing he's pleased by. It's the only thing he cares about. It's the only thing he wants from you. You may have wondered before, you know, sitting there in some quiet, profound, soul-searching moment, what does God want from me? Like, what does he really want from me in this life? This is it. He wants your trust. It's the only thing he wants. He wants your trust. And sin knows that. And that's why sin makes its sole objective to root this out. The whole program of sin is to kill faith. That's its whole point, to root out this type of trust in God. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's sin. Those are the opposites. That's the dichotomy. Faith, trust in God, or sin. And if sin is the opposite, what is the essence of sin then? Trusting yourself, self-sufficiency. And you see this dichotomy so clearly in these stories in Genesis 3 and 4. Adam and Eve are at the tree. Faith means trusting God. There's this command we don't understand, but we have to obey. Sin means trusting themselves. You know what? I think we'll look out for ourselves this time. I think we'll do what makes sense to us, what seems like the best course of action. Here with Cain, faith means giving, even though you don't know how much you're going to get in the end. Sin means holding back and saying, well, somebody's got to look out for me. Somebody's got to figure out what's best for my life. Somebody has to make these decisions because obviously God's not going to care about me as much as I care about me. Obviously God's not going to be trustworthy to really make sure everything turns out okay, so I'll kind of make my own arrangements. That's it. That's the dichotomy. And just as you know, I wish I could wipe out this misnomer about faith having to do with belief. It doesn't. It's trust. I wish I could also wipe out this misnomer about sin having to do with wrongdoing, about essentially being about wrongdoing. It's not. It leads to wrongdoing in some cases, 
but at its essence in his self-trust, its self-sufficiency. And that's why it's so critical that these first two examples of sin, nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets hurt initially when Adam and Eve eat from the tree. Nobody gets hurt by Cain holding back, hanging back in his offering. The, the issue is, is shown for us really clearly. It's a really pure example. The issue is trust. It's only later that somebody gets hurt. It's only later that people start you know, dying. And sin knows how it works. If, he, if sin can get you to put your own opinion above God's. Well, you know, the Bible says this. This is kind of my take on it. This is how I see it. You know, I'm a, I'm a thinker. I, I'm an independent person. So, you know, I, t- I take what the Bible says, and then I kind of put my spin on it and look at it the way I want to. If you, can, if you do that, if sin can get you to do that, then you put yourself above God. And if you put yourself above God, you'll put yourself above anybody. If it's me above God, it's certainly me above you. It's me above all. It's me, 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 here on out. And that's why self-sufficiency and self-absorption are the same thing. We think they're not. One of those has a good connotation, and one of them has a negative connotation. And there are these cultural barriers in every culture to receiving the Christian message. Ours, as Americans, is we believe there's nothing more virtuous than a self-made man. And the Bible says, first of all, there is no such thing. And second of all, nobody's more dangerous than the person that thinks they made themselves. And there's no difference. There's no fundamental difference between self-sufficiency and self-absorption. Because as soon as you start trusting yourself primarily, depending on yourself primarily, all of a sudden, slowly, yourself becomes your only concern. So if Cain will trust himself over God with the offering, he'll also trust himself over anybody, and he'll go out and kill his brother. And then you see it even, even further when this actual punishment comes, and he's weeping over his sin, and he's upset. He's, he's crying, and he's saying, you know, I can't bear this. What's the focus still? It's still on him. I can't bear this. This punishment is too much for me to bear. Those of you who are, are parents or teachers have seen this sometimes with, when a child, they're not sorry for what they did. They're just sorry that they got caught, you know, or they're sorry that there's a punishment. And that's the position that Cain is in. And what's critical is that in his sorrow, in his false repentance, I can't bear this, it's too much for me, but the focus is still all on him. He's every bit as sinful as he was when he killed Abel. He's every bit as sinful when he was when he, when he held back the offering because the core issue has nothing to do with wrongdoing. The core issue has to do with self-sufficiency and self-absorption. Faith and sin. Trusting God or trusting yourself. Sin is going right for the core issue for what God desires most from you. It's what sin does to us. It's method, how it attacks us. That's what it does in us. That's what it stands for. That's the principle it's operating by, what it's trying to get us to buy into and believe. Third and finally this morning, I want to look at what sin does to God. What does sin do to God? Look on the back of your program. About two-thirds of the way down, that paragraph starts with, The Lord said, The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the, blood, from the ground. So Abel's blood is crying out, and the question is, well, what is it saying? What's it, what's it crying out about? What's it crying out for? And the answer that the Bible gives over and over again, this is a pretty consistent theme, is that innocently shed blood cries out for justice. God can't see wrongdoing take place and just turn a blind eye. He can't hear people crying out that are suffering or that have been oppressed by their brothers, 
and just turn a deaf ear. He can't. He's a, a righteous God. He's a just God. And when this blood of Abel is spilled, it demands justice. It demands some sort of punishment and retribution. And yet the strangest thing about this passage is that justice is not served. You say, well, sure it is. Sure it's served. He, he punishes. He punishes Cain. Of course it's served. Of course justice is served. But we've seen this now two weeks. It's very weird. The the justice that's that's administered, it, it's not proportional. It doesn't match the crime. It should be a life for a life. And what's what's strangest about this is that if God would have just stayed out of it, that's exactly what would have happened. If he would have just stayed hands off, Cain's life would have been taken. You see Cain saying this later on. He says, well, they're going to kill me now in retribution. But two weeks in a row now, we've seen this very weird, very contradictory approach to sin that God takes, which is, on the one hand, to step in and shelter from the natural consequences, while on the other hand, with the other hand, so to speak, giving this basically artificial punishment. He makes up a new punishment. He's, he shelters them from the original punishment, and then he makes up a new punishment. This is very, very strange. It doesn't make any sense. Follow me here as we look at these, these two examples. Last week with Adam and Eve, the natural consequences is this debilitating shame and guilt and broken relationships. They're paralyzed. He comes in. He shelters them. He makes garments instead of letting them feel the natural consequences of their sin. And yet, at the same time, he says, well, I'm still just, though. And so he puts in these essentially proxy punishments, these other lesser punishments, these curses. So he's merciful, he wants to shield them, and yet he's just, so he still punishes. Same thing here with Cain. Cain says, my punishment's more than I can bear. You're driving me from the land, I will be hidden from your presence, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so, not so. And he marks Cain for mercy. He punishes him, but then he marks Cain for mercy. And it doesn't make any sense because all of those things that Cain was afraid he was going to receive, he deserved to receive. To be banished from God's presence, to be killed by his brothers, to be restless, wandering without a home. He deserved all those things, and yet God holds back. It's this tension between justice and mercy that basically propels the entire narrative of the Old Testament, the people of Israel. Constantly, this tension is there underlying God saying, I'm just, but I'm merciful. So I'm going to shield you from the punishment, but I'm also going to levy punishment. Over and over again, justice and mercy, justice and mercy, in conflict with one another, and in tension with one another. And he's contradicting himself constantly, doing both at the same time. And they're fighting. And here with Cain is one of the clearest examples of it, where he gives a curse, but then at the same time holds back the full punishment and doesn't let Cain suffer what he should suffer. Why? Because he knows that, that those punishments, those ultimate final punishments, will fall on Jesus. Cain says, I'm going to be a restless wanderer without a home. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He wanders homeless. Cain says, my brothers are going to find me and they're going to kill me. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And they come in the garden and find him and kill him. Cain says, you're going to banish me from your presence. Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus receives all these punishments that Cain deserved, and that anybody that's embraced sin like this deserves, something remarkable happens, and that's that for the first time, the justice of God and the mercy of God, instead of being in conflict with one another, they're actually one and the same thing. Look on the back of your program, the last verse at the bottom of your outline, 
from Hebrews 12. This is a remarkable verse. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, that's weird. I'm going to read it again. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, two, two different bloods here. We don't like to talk about blood a lot. It's kind of weird and gross and um, off-putting. Um, it's pretty central to Christianity. It's pretty central to what God's doing in the world. There are whole sections of the Christian church now that don't, you know, we kind of like scrub this part about Jesus' blood out because it offends us. I've been to churches where you're doing communion and it's, and it's the body and the cup. It's like the cup of what? You know, <laughs> what's in the cup? You have to talk about the blood of Christ for this reason, because it speaks. It speaks just like Abel's blood spoke. Now, what are they? They say different things. Abel's blood cries out to God. What does it say? It cries out for justice. And it says, look at mankind. They kill each other. They deserve judgment. You've got to do something about this. Jesus' blood speaks also. It speaks in the same way, but it speaks for a different, for a different purpose. Jesus' blood cries out and says, justice has already been served because the sins of man have been absolved. I paid for them. My blood covers it all because it's perfect. And as I said, the reason that's so remarkable is because now you have the justice of God and the mercy of God aligned. They've been in conflict all along. And this is the moment in the story where there's a resolution, where they come to be the same thing. It's always been justice tempered by mercy or mercy tempered by justice. And here for the first time, they're both expressed fully and at the same moment. How is that possible? Because in Christ, no punishment is held back. It's leveled fully. It's all the way, justice to its full extent. And yet, because it's falling on him, instead of falling on us, it's mercy that's fullest as well. You say, all right, I've I've heard that before, heard you talk about that before. Jesus takes the punishment that Cain deserved, takes the punishment that I deserved, I guess. I get that. Um, Explain to me again, the part I always miss is, why that matters like what what purpose for what purpose does jesus suffer for what purpose does jesus take the punishment and i want to be careful in answering that because it's not just one thing when you talk about why did jesus die you can't limit it to one particular purpose there's many um, and you kind of will miss the big picture if you get too hyper focused you can look at it from a bunch of different angles Actually, in this next sec- section of our series, this next segment of seven messages talking about redemption, we're going to do just that. But we can talk about at least one purpose this morning of him undergoing this punishment on our behalf. And that's th- this business of the justice and mercy of God being aligned, what it does for, for something like experiencing forgiveness on a daily basis in the Christian life. One of the most common problems for Christians is not feeling forgiven. You know, you know you're forgiven, you've, you've been told you're forgiven, but you don't feel it. And the verse, one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, that's often quoted to somebody in that position to kind of bring comfort is First John 1, 9. Well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is a word in that sentence that is totally out of place and the word is just if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness 
It shouldn't say just. It should say merciful. It should say he's faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. Why does it say just? It's because of the cross. It's because of Jesus aligning justice and mercy, making them the same thing, so that the justice of God in all its perfection, in all its infallibility, in all its exact in in all of its exactitude is now instead of being against us on our side. And I think that we don't absorb that. You know, we don't absorb this idea about the blood of Jesus speaking a better word and crying out for justice. I think that it's more often like you sin, you do something wrong, and you go to God and you say, God, please forgive me. You know, I, please forgive me just this one time. I promise, I promise, I promise I'll never do it again. Please forgive me. And that's great until, you know, you're back the next week, same place, on your knees again saying, it happened again, you know, one more time. This is it. Please forgive me just this one more time. And we're calling on his mercy, essentially. We're saying, God, you know, I did wrong. I, I don't deserve to be forgiven, but I'm asking you to forgive me anyway because I know you're merciful. But this thought starts to creep in, which is, well, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to forgive me. And, you know, I'm asking him repeatedly for this same forgiveness, but what if I'm still doing this next year or two years from now or five years from now? What if I'm still in the same position? At some point, is he going to say, okay, enough is enough? You think you can just beg your way forever to forgiveness? No, like, come on, there's, there's reasonable limits here. And the reason it's so important to understand that at the cross, justice and mercy align is because it totally changes the grounds upon which forgiveness is offered to you. So when I confess, it's not Jesus standing there with God saying, you know, please forgive him. Please forgive him this one time. And God's saying, well, you know, all right. When I confess, Jesus stands there and he says to God, I'm not asking for mercy. I'm demanding justice. The cross. Look at the cross. You have to accept him. You have to cleanse him. You have to receive him. It's done. It's done. And this is what separates Christianity from every other system of thought, from every other religion, from every other re- approach to life, is that it's already done. It's already been done, and all you have to do is receive it. The receiving it part is not as as easy as it sounds. Sometimes I feel like it's made to sound as though to receive this this um, covering of your sins, to receive this new life, all you have to do is, you know, going back to the misnomer from before, believe. Just believe that it happened cognitively. And that's not all... It, it, that's not it at all. You have to have faith. And the verse in Ephesians 2, 8, by faith you receive this through grace. And I think that the reason that faith is so important in all these other areas is because it's sort of a setup for this one big test. So what's the connection? You know, we talked about faith earlier. Now we're talking about faith again. How does it go together? Well, if you have faith, if you, you, you have these smaller faith tests, can I have faith, you know, to, with my future? Can I have faith with my kids? Can I have faith with my career, with my money? And then, then at the end, the big test is, well, can I have faith for God to take care of my sins? Can I have faith for God to, to take care of my righteousness? And the logic is the same in either case. So somebody like Cain, for instance, who holds back with the offering and says, I don't think I can trust God. I'm going to work something out on my own. When God comes to, to Cain and said, what, if he were to say, well, here's righteousness. I've taken care of it for you. Here, here I, this is a free gift. The exact same logic applies. 
And you still have to say, well, you know, that's nice. God says he'll take care of me, but I still have to take care of it for myself. I still have to do something for myself. Having faith in these smaller circumstantial issues is, is in some ways practice for having faith in this, this larger issue of trusting God to take care of your sins. And the really tough thing about it is, if you let's say that you don't have faith kind of in the day-to-day circumstantial stuff. You don't have faith for God to take care of your finances or your kids or whatever, and you just try to take care of it yourself. What's sad about it is that in those cases, in the circumstantial cases, you can scrape something together on your own. You can make it work. There are plenty of people out there who make life work even though they're not trusting God. They do it by their own effort. It works out okay. God, for whatever reason, has set it up so that you can scrape it together on your own when it comes to the circumstantial stuff. But if you are in the habit of doing that, and then God comes to you with this offer of justification and says, trust me for your righteousness, trust me to take care of your sin, and you're in the habit of not trusting God, and you try to scrape it together for yourself in that area, then your efforts fall woefully short. You, know, you come up way, way short of where you need to be, and the consequences are a lot higher than they are when you don't have faith in this life. And that's why trust is everything. That's why faith is everything. Well, it's the only thing that can please God because it's the thing that gives us access to Christ and the cross. It's the thing that makes it possible to not have to take care of our own sins but to let God take care of them for you. And God will let you. If you, if you want to take the, the, the scariest part of the whole Bible is that God says if you, want, if you really want to take care of your own sins, if you really want to try to take care of it for yourself, I'll let you. And you don't want to be in that position. So trust is everything. Trusting God with your life, with your sins, with your future, is everything. It's not just this part. It's not just this side issue. It's the core of what it means to have a relationship with God. It's the core of what it means to to use a, a word that's um, been sapped of all meaning. It's the core of what it means to be saved. To be saved is to put your trust in God, to have him take care of this instead of yourself. Let's pray and ask him to help with this. God, we, as we looked these last three weeks at sin and what it does to us and the work that it does in our hearts, the changes that it makes in us, God, we see its effects everywhere. We see the way that it's made us trust ourselves above you in almost every area of our lives. As we come to you this morning, we pray that as we seek you, you would restore faith. You would restore this trust in you not just for provision in our daily life, for taking care of our needs, but also for provision for our sins, for taking care of our, our salvation, for taking care of our righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.